listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, welcome to today's episode. Hey, we have picked up several hundred new listeners in the last few weeks, so I want to welcome you if you're newer to the show. This is season three, so you can go back through, look at some old guests, and pick up someone maybe you haven't listened to yet. Today, a little treat. I'm going to read a couple of stories from Friedman's Fables. For those of you who have been following for a while, I guess this is part two, because last season I also read from Friedman's Fables. Uh, Ed Friedman is very famous in family systems circles, famous for a book called Failure of Nerve, also a book he wrote called Generation to Generation. Really what makes Friedman so brilliant is he took family systems theory off the therapy couch and he put it into the church or the synagogue and then in failure of nerve he put it into any leadership environment but i'm convinced that his best book is his least known book which is called friedman's fables it's a series of fictional stories they're playful they're provocative you can read them to your kids you can read them to your team so we'll do two fables today and before we do i just want to read a quick piece from the prologue because I think Friedman gives us a great summary of what he's accomplishing in these fables. Here's what he says. He says, the illusions that I aim to shatter are the following. These are all illusions. Number one, that communication is a cerebral phenomenon rather than an emotional process. The second illusion he's shattering is that insight will work with people who are unmotivated to change. The third illusion, that resistance to your message can be overcome by trying harder. And finally, he's breaking the illusion that seriousness is deeper than playfulness. All right, the first fable in the book, it's called The Bridge. There was a man who had given much thought to what he wanted from life. He'd experienced many moods and trials. He'd experimented with different ways of living And he had had his share of both success and failure, and at last, he began to see clearly where he wanted to go. Diligently, he searched for the right opportunity. Sometimes he came close only to be pushed away. Often, he applied all his strength and imagination only to find the path hopelessly blocked. And then, at last, it came. But the opportunity would not wait. It would be made available only for a short time. If it was seen that he was not committed, the opportunity would not come again. Eager to arrive, he started on his journey. With each step, he wanted to move faster. With each thought about his goal, his heart beat quicker. With each vision of what lay ahead, he found renewed vigor. Strength that had left him since his early youth returned, and desires, all kinds of desires, reawakened from their long dormant positions. Hurrying along, he came upon a bridge that crossed through the middle of a town. It had been built high above a river in order to protect it from the floods of spring, and he started across. Then he noticed that someone coming from the opposite direction. As they moved closer, it seemed as though the other were coming to greet him. He could see clearly, however, that he did not know this other, who was dressed similarly except for something tied around his waist. When they were within hailing distance, he could see that what the other had around his waist was a rope. It was wrapped around him many times and probably, if extended, would reach a length of 30 feet. 
The other began to uncurl the rope, and just as they were coming close, the stranger said, Pardon me, would you be so kind as to hold the end a moment? Surprised by this politely phrased but curious request, he agreed without a thought, and he reached out and he took the rope. Thank you, said the other, who then added, Two hands now, and remember, hold tight, whereupon the other jumped off the bridge. Quickly, the free-falling body hurtled the distance of the rope's length, and from the bridge the man abruptly felt the pull. Instinctively, he held tight and was almost dragged over the side. He managed to brace himself against the edge, however, and after having caught his breath, he looked down at the other dangling, close to oblivion. "'What are you trying to do?' he yelled. "'Just hold tight,' said the other. "'This is ridiculous,' the man thought, and he began trying to haul the other in. He could not get the leverage, however. It was as though the weight of the other person and the length of the rope had been carefully calculated in advance, so that together they created a counterweight just beyond his strength to bring the other back to safety. "'Why did you do this?' the man called out. "'Remember,' said the other, "'if you let go, I will be lost.' "'But I cannot pull you up,' the man cried. "'I am your responsibility,' said the other. "'I did not ask for it,' the man said. "'If you let go, I'm lost,' repeated the other. "'And he began to look around for help. "'But there was no one. "'How long would he have to wait? "'Why did this happen to befall him now, "'just as he was on the verge of true success?' "'He examined the side, "'searching for a place to tie the rope.' some protrusion, perhaps, or maybe a hole in the boards. But the railing was unusually uniform in shape. There were no spaces between the boards. There was no way to get rid of this newfound burden, even temporarily. "'What do you want?' he asked the other hanging below. "'Just your help,' the other answered. "'How can I help? I can't pull you in, and there's no place to tie the rope so I can go and find someone to help me help you.' I know that. Just hang on. That will be enough. Tie the rope around your waist. It'll be easier. Fearing that his arms could not hold out much longer, he tied the rope around his waist. Why did you do this? He asked. Don't you see what you've done? What possible purpose could you have in mind? Just remember, said the other, my life is in your hands. What should he do? If I let go all my life, I'll know that I let this other die. If I stay, I risk losing my momentum toward my other long-sought-after salvation. Either way, this will haunt me forever. With ironic humor, he thought to die himself, instantly, to jump off the bridge while still holding on. That would teach this fool. But he wanted to live, and to live life fully. What a choice I have to make. How shall I ever decide? As time went by, still no one came. The critical moment of decision was drawing near. To show his commitment to his own goals, he would have to continue on his journey now. It was already almost too late to arrive in time, but what a terrible choice to have to make. A new thought occurred to him. While he could not pull this other up solely by his own efforts, if the other would shorten the rope from his end by curling it around his waist again and again. Together, they could do it. Actually, the other could do it by himself, so long as he, standing on the bridge, kept still and steady. 
Now listen, he shouted down. I think I know how to save you. And he explained his plan. But the other wasn't interested. You mean you won't help? But I told you I cannot pull you up by myself, and I don't think I can hang on much longer either. You must try, the other shouted back in tears. If you fail, I'll die. The point of decision arrived. What should he do? My life or this other's? And then a new idea, a revelation. So new, in fact, it seemed heretical. So alien was it to his traditional way of thinking. I want you to listen carefully, he said, because I mean what I'm about to say. I will not accept the position of choice for your life, only for my own. The position of choice for your life I hereby give back to you. What do you mean, the other asked, afraid? I mean simply, it's up to you. You decide which way this ends. I'll become the counterweight. You do the pulling and bring yourself up. I'll even tug a little from here. He began unwinding the rope from around his waist and braced himself anew against the side. You cannot mean what you say, the other shrieked. To do so would be so selfish. I'm your responsibility. What could be so important that you would let someone die? Do not do this to me. He waited a moment. There was no change in the tension of the rope. I accept your choice, he said at last, and freed his hands. story is called Cinderella, and the subtitle is key. The subtitle is An Address Delivered to the National Association of Family Therapists by Cinderella's Stepmother. So of course, what you're about to hear is Cinderella's stepmother's point of view. She says, It's with great appreciation that I stand here today. On behalf of all the stepmothers of every age everywhere, I want to thank you. Actually, it's hard for me to believe this finally happened. For so many years, I've wanted the opportunity to tell my side of the story, but no one would listen. In truth, no one even thought there was another side. I'm tempted to seize this opportunity to get even, to rebut and refute all those who have contributed to branding my stereotype into the world's culture, and who have perpetuated the myth of my meanness. Equal time is a wonderful elixir but I fear there's no way I could do that without appearing defensive. I've decided, therefore, to simply tell it as it was, or at least as it was according to my perception. And you'll have to determine the truth, though at least when I'm through, I hope it will be from a more evenly weighted point of view. I first met Cinderella's father at a dance given by the king. It was to celebrate the completion of a new wing of the castle, and Cindy's father had been one of the major contractors. I should mention, by the way, that we never, ever called her Cinderella. She wouldn't hear of it. It wasn't folksy enough. I'd been invited because my late husband had been one of the original designers, and I'd just gone through a year of mourning, and this was a kind of coming out for me. I was struck immediately by the man's gentleness. 
He had a sadness in his eyes, and somehow his doleful demeanor sparked pity in my heart. He seemed quite intelligent, if quiet, and he talked a great deal about his daughter, whom he obviously adored. His wife had died several years previously, and he seemed so choked even to mention it that I never did find out what Aylman had done her in. He had lived alone with his teenage daughter, and except for an older, wealthy, widowed sister, about whom I shall have more to say later, that interfering witch, he had few personal relationships. It was a pleasant enough evening, and I was glad that I had begun to circulate again. I was quite surprised, however, by what was to follow. For the very next evening he came round with a basket of fruit and flowers. My daughters, who both were home that evening, giggled and gasped and discreetly went out to play. I was overwhelmed. I had never received that much attention from my first husband in all our years together. We went for a walk, talked, and before I knew it, he proposed. I tried to point out that we hardly knew one another, but he was very persistent. I told him I needed time to consider it, and I spent most of the next day plucking daisies. In retrospect, I don't know what was the matter with me. Generally, the last thing you would call me is impulsive, but I was lonely, and he made a good living that would provide security for my own children. And there was this yearning in me to care for someone. Most of all, Maybe I was just plain flattered. Little did I know how soon all that attention would cease. And little did I guess what I was in for with his beloved Cindy. As soon as we moved in, I went about setting things to rights. While I would not consider myself orderly to a fault, I do believe that order is essential to any fruitful life, though when it comes to kitchens, There I admit to erring on the side of the meticulous. My daughters, raised in this atmosphere, were naturally tidy, and perhaps it was a mistake on my part to expect that Cindy would have exactly the same attitude. The truth of the matter is that she had none of the same attitudes of of my daughters at all. She balked immediately at any mention of her assistance in setting the table or fetching water or cleaning the floor. In fact, I don't think she had ever actually held a broom before. I tried at first to persuade her that this was important for her own upbringing as well as for the family, but she would just throw a temper tantrum or run to her father, who always took her side by failing to support me. Often she would go to her room where she seemed to have an infinite capacity for sitting and looking out the window. And I admit that I was unsure of my own authority. After all, She was not really my daughter. Sometimes when my own daughters, who were naturally upset at having to do all the work, would taunt her, she would come back with remarks obviously born in those long periods of fantasy. You just wait and see, she would say. Someday I won't have to live here any longer. Someday, she would say, my prince will come. Things got worse. My daughters became more and more upset about having to do her share of the work My husband spent more and more time away from the house, and my health, always my best companion, began to leave me. Finally, one day, I told Cindy's father that I'd have to take my daughters and leave if he was unwilling to support me on this. That must have gotten to him, because he agreed that Cindy would have to obey me. He was never around, of course, to back me up, but at least it stopped her from running to him whenever she couldn't get her way with me. So, 
All she did instead was start running to my husband's sister. This sister was, as I said, a wealthy widow with no children of her own and gave Cindy absolutely everything she wanted. This too became a problem for my daughters as she never really accepted them or me. It seemed as though all Cindy would have to do is wish something and there was her aunt making it happen. Once again, things were starting to become intolerable and that's when this other flake began to show up. He had seen Cindy walking her usual aimless way one day, and he must have sensed the compatibility immediately. He had nothing to recommend him, no trade, no goals, nor any idea what he would be doing with his life in the next hour, let alone the next day. Another dreamer. And another charmer. Boy, were they made for one another. On the surface, so kind and gentle and pleasing, always saying the right thing when they wanted something, and innocent, always so innocent. He also made passes at my daughters, I should add, but they found him absolutely revolting. Well, one night, Cindy and her charming prince just take off and don't come back. And at first, I didn't know how they expected to survive, although I have a suspicion that the sister-in-law of mine was in cahoots. And then the most amazing thing comes out, It turns out he really is a prince, the king's only son of all things. Evidently, they'd been having a lot of trouble with him. He hadn't been minding his studies, he was sneaking certain herbs that are generally forbidden into the castle, and he'd gotten into bad company. Well, the next thing I hear, Cindy and the prince are getting married in a big royal affair. The prince is taken to wearing fine clothes and preparing for succession, and everyone's running around saying how Cindy was the best thing that ever happened to him. She sent some servant back to the house for her things, and we never did see her again. (laughs) You didn't think we'd be invited to the wedding, did you? I was disappointed, of course, especially for my daughters, but the worst was yet to come, for the palace began to put out this story of a great romance, how the prince had not been seen for a long time because he was actually searching for his one and only and how he had found her in a hovel and, pardon me, this is the part that really hurts, how she had almost been a slave in her father's house because he had been ensnared by the wiles of this wicked witch. I don't know how it all got going. Maybe it took off as a natural embellishing of the romance. Maybe it was Cindy's way of getting back at me. In all events... We could not show ourselves in the market for a long time. And finally, to give my daughters a better chance, we moved to another town. In looking back, however, I don't know if I'd have done things differently. I still believe in the values of energy, persistence, and order. Maybe I took on too much responsibility. I should have let her flake out all the way. After all, she was my husband's daughter. Or maybe I should have waited longer till I remarried. One thing I did learn, however, I shouldn't have backed off each time Cindy went to tell her father and aunt how mean I was. I should have gotten so-called meaner. You know, I think I was the only one who ever took a stand with her. But, given the overall absence of limits, that's the only thing she remembered about me. And maybe, as one of my daughters say, that's why she and her prince persisted in the myth about my meanness. It was probably the only way they could really live with one another, 
happily ever after. All right, those are Friedman's Fables. You can pick up the book, read it to your friends, have a great conversation, and I look forward to seeing you next week with my next guest. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.